You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, since the pandemic began, work from home has become the norm for many who previously went to work in offices. What will work be like after the pandemic? Post-COVID, what I mean, after we find a vaccine, I don't know when that will be, maybe next year, and it's widely available. Then I think there's a huge upside in the sense that we'll go from very occasionally working from home from something like two, three days a week. So rather than, say, commuting in and living in downtown San Francisco, if you want to do, you could go live out in Central Valley or you know further out in East Bay or far away. Because if you've only got to go in the office two, three days a week, you may well put up with an hour and a half commute. I'm Mel Baker, sitting in for Laura Wenis. This is Civic. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, only a small percentage of mostly white-collar employees worked from home. In fact, many companies discouraged their staffs from doing so, fearing a loss in productivity and creativity. Now, about 40% of those employed before the pandemic are working from home. The relative success of this change in the way work is done has challenged some of the earlier assumptions of employers and employees So what will the post-pandemic new normal be like? On this edition of Civic, we're speaking with Stanford economics professor Nicholas Bloom, who has conducted extensive studies on work from home. Let's talk first about some of the statistics you've uncovered about work from home. How many people are working from home? What the percentages are right now during the pandemic? Sure. So before COVID, about 5% of working days were spent at home. So it's pretty rare. And that was done by about 15% of Americans. So 15% of us work from home, but we work from home on average, you know, one in every three days. So it's pretty rare to do it. During COVID, 40% of days are now working from home. So it's an eightfold increase. It's like an enormous jump up. And basically anyone that can work from home right now is working from home. It's like universal. If you can, you are. Post-COVID is kind of interesting. So post-COVID, I've talked to a lot of firms and run a few national surveys. And it's looking very much like it will be something like 20% of working days will be at home. Where does that come from? It looks like anyone that can work from home, which is roughly half of us, will do that roughly half time after COVID, something like two out of five days a week. So, you know, again, for most listeners, I'm suspecting most listeners are, you know, on the more educated side. So if you're a college grad, by far the most likely outcome is post-COVID. You're in the office, let's say Monday, Wednesday, Friday every week. You're at home Tuesday, Thursday. You're maybe in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, home Tuesday, Thursday, week one, and you alternate in week two. It's reversed in a kind of A-B setting. You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of us were shocked how well, in general, we could work from home. Um, I'm surprised I can do most of my interviewing and producing remotely. You did a a TED Talk in 2017 where you've been talking about work from home. And in some of the research you did to back this up, which I want to get into, but it was really interesting that you used so much humor at the start of the uh, of the TED Talk to try to ease people into the idea that maybe this was an okay thing to do. More more work from home, not all the time, but more work from home. So I, I find that that's just an enormous sea change just built by necessity. What are the reasons employers resisted the idea of work from home for so long? So you're right, you know, initially, just before COVID, uh, work from home just had a terrible reputation. So in that TED Talk, I punched into, uh, in fact, Bing rather than Google, but they're basically the same thing. I punched in the words work from home and went to image search and clicked on it. 
And it brought up like, you know, I showed the top 15 photos. They're pictures of naked people, cartoons, people are sitting in the bath or with babies. There's only, over, you know, about one or two serious images. And the biggest was a guy sat in a jacuzzi with a glass of champagne. I mean, it was just a terrible image. In fact, I tried this the other day, like about a week ago. And now it's lots of studious looking people looking happy and, you know, very shiny, impressive looking living room. So there has been an enormous change. Interestingly enough, it's not the technology. So I did a big uh, research piece on working from home with a Chinese company in 2010, and we shifted 500 people to working from home in the space of four weeks. And it was pretty straightforward. So just to be clear, there are four things we need from working from home for office jobs. There's broadband, there's internet, there's laptops, and there's video conferencing. And the last of those to come into place was the video conference. Uh, so that came about really broad, broadly with Skype, which came out in 2003. But by about, I'm, I mean, I personally remember using Skype in, I think it was 2006, was right after I joined Stanford. I was really amazed. But, you know, by 2010, it was totally normal. I, you know, my, you know, my wife and I would Skype with our kids back to the grandparents, et cetera. So for a decade, it's been totally straightforward to do it. So then the question is, you know, why haven't more firms embraced working from home? I think, you know, I'm kind of a, like all of us are thinking it's working out really well. Why on earth didn't we do it earlier? Uh, it's like nuts. It took the COVID pandemic to drive this through. And then why they didn't do it earlier I think it's honestly what economists call a problem of general equilibrium, which is nobody wants to change if no one else changes. So just to explain that, imagine I'm the only person in my team and I shift to working from home. As I know from my research, you tend to get passed over for a promotion and get seen as, you know, some kind of slacker or, you know, whether or not that's true, it's it's hard to do. It. Imagine now you say, oh, I'm a manager. I'm going to have my whole team work from home. The other managers in the firm and maybe your customers are a bit skeptical of you. And imagine now the whole firm shifts. You know, it was very hard to do it. You'd see firms that entirely shifted from working from home. And then they'd have all these problems with banks and customers and clients, et cetera. But that's, of course, all changed. So COVID has completely rewritten all the rules. The stigma seems to have evaporated. So post-COVID, we're in a totally new world uh, where we honestly should have been, you know, before COVID, whereby working from home is normal. And those of us that can are probably going to do it two, three days a week. Yeah, and it's interesting too, you brought up the requirements for being able to work from home. Can you kind of the general list of, of things that made it successful for this company in China, this travel firm? They had to have a room of their a room to work in. They had to have yes, good so Wi-Fi. You're right. There's the I, there's the technology requirements, which are like broadband email, you know, a laptop and uh, video conferencing. But then there's the home side requirements. So China required that you had a room of your own that's not your bedroom. Which so this is the C trip experiment. You know, I I had I'd say I've spoken to you know dozens of American firms as well. This is very standard. Nobody wants their home based employers to be working sat on their bed or in a room with you know their kids running around. So that's the first thing. The second is no children at home, and the third is properly functioning broadband and equipment. So before COVID, that seemed totally normal. During COVID, you know, there's not many of us that are in that. I mean, I have four kids. I do have good broadband. You know, the room I'm in. It's not great. It's basically my mother-in-law from Scotland's her spare room, and she's over. It's just dominated by an enormous bed and not much else. And my laptop, I actually dropped it coming in from the garden about a month ago, and the hinges were like floppy. So <laughs> I have to like rest it against a pile of books. So yes, you know it's it's okay, but you know the, the basic point actually about working from home right now is we shouldn't really compare working from home against the office in 2019, which we remember some of us quite fondly. We should compare working from home against the office right now. And if I don't know if anyone's been into the office, I, you know, I had to go in the other day 
to get something. And it's really horrible. It's like masks. You have to do a training video, temperature checks, hand washing, gloves, you know, perspex. It's a really unpleasant situation. No one around, 250 square feet social distancing. So right now, it remind, you know, reminds me a lot of the Winston Churchill quote about democracy. He said, democracy is a terrible form of government, but it's better than all the others. All the others, yes. And like working from home is right now is not great, but it's better than the alternatives, which, you know, there isn't really any better alternatives. In the office, it's probably even worse. So, you know, we are where we are. I think that the really interesting and promising thing is post-COVID, what I mean, after we find a vaccine, I don't know when that will be, maybe next year, and it's widely available. Then I think there's a huge upside in the sense that we'll go from, you know, very occasionally working from home from something like two, three days a week, which, for example, people living in San Francisco is amazing. You can completely change your life if you want to. So rather than, say, commuting in and living in downtown San Francisco, if you want to do, you could go live out in Central Valley or, you know, further out in East Bay or far away. Because if you've only got to go in the office two, three days a week, you may well put up with an hour and a half commute. And an hour and a half commute, you can live in some you know, beautiful, far more affordable places. So I think it would be really revolutionary, but it's going to take obviously the end of the pandemic for that to settle out. I'd like to make a big part of our discussion about what commercial sectors and things may look like. But it's interesting that just recently Google said, we are expecting you to work from home until June of next year. When Google, who has access to all of this data and is a data-driven company, makes a case like that to its employees, that seems to really tell us something about how long this may, well, the rest of us should realistically expect it to last. Yeah, I, I'm not remotely surprised, actually. I've talked to, I don't know, probably 20, 30 companies since the shutdown. And also I know what's going on in Stanford. So Stanford's very similar to Google. Stanford's announced basically all teaching is going to be online, more or less, and effectively we're all going to be working from home till next summer. So there's a few things to bear in mind. One is as it happens, where I'm living in Santa Clara County, you can't actually go into work under county regulations unless you have a necessity to be there. So even if I said to Stanford, you know, home is terrible. I've got four kids there screaming and chatting all the time. I'm not allowed to come in. And so Google will be the same. Its main offices are in the same county. Then you think, well, look, I'm at, obviously at some point the shutdown's going to ease, let's say next spring. Even then, until there's a widespread vaccine and people are taking it, it will still be very unpleasant to come in the offices. So I think it's a safe bet to say, honestly, I mean, dozens of firms I talked to have the same view. We are going to be heavily home-based with probably no one forced to come into the office or very few people until about next summer because the office is such an unpleasant environment right now. After that, it's much less clear. Again, from talking to lots of firms, by far the most common mode is giving your employees a bit of choice but and requiring them to come in a bit. So there's not many firms I talk to. I mean, Quora, for example, has said it's going to be primarily home-based. So Quora, the CEO said, he's only going to go into the office one day a month to make that work. So there are some firms that are in the long run see themselves as home-based. So they're not going to sell their office space, which is interesting. But most firms still say the office is where it's at. We want to see you in two, three days a week for new hires, five days a week. But, you know, you can kind of take a couple of days and work at home. And so Google's announcement is very much lying in line with that. In the near term, as in the next year, you're basically at home. And then after that, we'll play it by ear, but likely to be a bit of a mixed setup. That's a really huge shift because so many of, especially when we think of the cutting edge companies, uh, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Apple, have built these massive campuses that are designed to keep everyone working longer and staying at the place longer. You have all of these 
amenities and things that are making the work environment very, very pleasant. So you're trying to keep people on campus as long as possible. And the giant open floor plans and every and all of these other things. It's almost as if everything that was designed among the tech industry, especially, is almost completely upended. By it's COVID. completely different. I tell you, it's kind of you know one analogy I have in mind is when that you know uh, massive meteorite hit the face of the Earth 150 million years ago and wiped out the dinosaurs. There's pre, during, and post. You know, we forget about the period the Earth must have been in hell during the meteorite, you know, the year after it, but we're kind of in that right now is awful. In fact, high tech isn't the most extreme. I tell you who's the most extreme is companies in tall skyscrapers. They're even more radical what's going to have to happen. So if you take something like Salesforce Tower in downtown San Francisco, they've not only have all the issues I talked about, about the challenges from terms of infection going back to the offices, they can't even get their employees into the office, even if they wanted to. So there's two huge barriers. One is how do you get to the front door of those things? Because most people are coming by the metro or the train or the bus. And then even at the front door, how do you get up to floor 30? You've got to take the elevator. And as you know, I've looked into this in building design. Elevators are basically built to deal with peak capacity, which is 830 to 9 going up and 430 to 5 going down. But that's assuming that we have like three square feet of space, not that we socially distance. So, you know, it's even more extreme if you currently work in one of those, you know, skyscrapers in downtown San Francisco. I actually think in the long run, those things are never going to go back to what they were before. So it's not only it's going to change society in terms of a huge increase in working from home, it's going to dramatically push back on cities. So, you know, property prices, commercial and private real estate, you know, as in apartments, are going to fall quite dramatically in central San Francisco and going to rise out in the suburbs and out in the rural areas. And in some ways, it may be very negative. If you, you know, if I if I own eight apartments in downtown San Francisco, I'm facing like a big capital loss. I mean, of course, if I bought them 10 years ago, I'm still up. I'm just less up. On the other hand, I think it's genuinely good for society because it reduces, A, the affordability crisis because it will be easier to live in downtown. So if you're renting, you should actually be happy. And B, it's going to rebalance things. So it's no longer, we have places like Central Valley, which are dramatically poorer than San Francisco. We're going to have much more of a balanced society. But it's going to be a huge change. I think, you know, particularly those skyscrapers, the value of those buildings is going to fall by, you know, a third easily. If you can't, if you can only pack two thirds as many people in. And just to be clear, I'm talking post-COVID. Now, I understand that post-COVID, the restrictions will go. But from a lot of the survey data I've looked at, for we, survey, we did two surveys of two and a half thousand Americans. 77% of people still said they'd be very nervous post-COVID of getting into a subway or a packed elevator. And, you know, it's kind of easy to see why we spent a year being told viruses are everywhere. You've got to be distanced. It's very easy to get infected. We're aware. I mean, I'm personally aware we've had some near misses with SARS and Ebola and MERS and bird flu. I don't think that many people and firms are going to be rushing back to very cramped environments. You know, they worry about getting infected. They worry about, I don't know, the pandemic of 2026. And they have to empty the office back out again. So I think it's really fundamentally changing society, in particular in San Francisco. What about, I mean, some of the uh, the Asian cultures, the ones that had to deal with SARS, et cetera, people just got used to wearing masks all the time, but those cities didn't necessarily empty out, did they? No, there's a short and long run change. So Tokyo has, for example, I was reading an article in the Financial Times the other day, I've seen a huge surge in working from home. So it's not that these buildings or apartments will come vacant. They'll become less attractive because people are more nervous about living them and the rents and the prices will fall. So in many ways, 
I see us as probably returning to San Francisco of 2000. So remember the year 2000, not that the city was empty. It's just not quite as packed as it was now. And the prices aren't quite as absurd. But 2000, San Francisco is still an expensive place to live. It's just we're going to reverse maybe 10 or 20 years of move into the city. So it would be more balanced, which I honestly, I personally think it's probably good. You know, Stanford University itself had a massive affordability crisis. We were struggling to hire anyone because property around here is becoming so astronomically expensive. And so if it kind of calms the property bubble down and moves people out, there's plenty of space in Central Valley and further north and south. That's probably good for society. So in a way, you're anticipating that this will look like post.com bust. And not necessarily deeper than that, as far as the the hit to uh, real estate and et cetera. Yes, I think it will do. Um, I've done a lot of work talking to firms. And just to be clear, it's not that they want to reduce office space on average. They just want to take it out of high rises and put it into places actually like the Googleplex or Apple. So in particular, firms really want office space that has two characteristics. One, it has parking for most employees because basically people are going to drive there. And two, they don't have more than three or four stories, so you can use the stairs to get up and down. And most of you know Silicon Valley campuses meet that. Interestingly enough, in some ways, what I think is going to happen is a lot of gyms and cinemas, uh, you know, nail salons and places that are going to be permanently beaten down by the COVID pandemic are going to be converted to offices. So in an odd way, maybe this is a bit of a savior for gym chains. They have to close down half their gyms. At least they can get a good price for the property. Because if you think about a gym, that's kind of a perfect thing for an office. You can drive there. There's plenty of parking and it's, you know, it's a one or two story building. So I think there's just going to be more of a flattening off of society. We're not going to all be heaped in, you know, very dense city centers with struggling suburbs and, you know, rural areas. We're going to be just more balanced. Again, just to be clear, that's like we were in 2000. So it's not some radical new thing. We're just reversing 20 years of flying to the city. Well, yeah, I worked during the dot-com boom, and the places I worked were converted warehouses. Yes. So that was the office space you worked in. They were all converted because the, the high-rises were decade out to build, yeah. to build those up. And the dot-com culture didn't even embrace those. It was these small, scattered workplaces. Maybe we'd see something like small offices scattered all over small neighborhoods. So these empty yes, exactly, in a little office space. I think, I mean, another thing I think is like to happen is it's not that these skyscrapers are going to be empty, but you're now going to be limited in how many people you can have on each floor because you can't get them up and down in the elevator. And you particularly don't want an entire building full of companies that all start work at nine and leave at five. One line I've heard increasingly is maybe we can convert some of those floors of skyscrapers with offices to residential apartments. You know, initially you think that doesn't make sense, but in fact, it makes perfect sense because residential apartments tend to be going down at 9 a.m. and coming back up at 5 a.m. And that's the exact reverse of the office traffic. And they also tend to be much less synchronized. You know, most people leave to work at maybe eight. So you what you want is a more balanced flow throughout the day. You want lower density. And if that happens, in many ways, that's great. These are people moving back to live in the city. They're not going to be driving because they're living in downtown. So I think we'll have more balance. Some people living far out and driving in every two or three days a week and others moving in to reclaim offices that are no longer usable where they can live at you know, affordable rents. On a previous episode of Civic, we actually interviewed a couple of architects who had a plan for redeveloping an area down on Beale Street and actually turning it into uh both housing and uh, literally vertical farms and such. I mean, very utopian sort of mi- vision, but stuff like that might become possible if if all of this incredible high-rise real estate we've built becomes sort of stranded uh, property. 
Yeah, exactly. So just, you know, as an economist, what's very clear is before the pandemic, the scarce factor, the thing you were paying for in these high rises was the space on the floors. That's literally how your a landlord would charge it to you for, per square foot. That's no longer the scarce factor. The scarce factor now is the elevator usage. I could easily see a future whereby, you know, landlords go to tenants, we're going to reduce your rents by two thirds but we're going to charge you for elevator use and we're going to charge you a massive premium if you come up at 8.30 to 9 and come down 4.30 to 5. And that would mean if you have weird hours or have a very different business model, actually that lat space might be pretty cheap. So you could easily find that, you know, artists So if collected- you work in the stock industry and you're tied to Wall Street and you have to be there at 6 in exactly. the morning. So oddly yeah. enough, they will be very popular tenants. <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. I could see high tech mixed in with, you know, take... Imagine if you set up art studios or some creatives that actually come in at 10 a.m. and leave at 7. They're great. For them, life is much cheaper. They're not trying to congest the elevators at the same time that, let's say, people in the tech industry that start two hours earlier. So I think actually in an odd way, in terms of that kind of industrial and uh, you know activity, it may increase diversification, more of a mix, more of a mix between residential and corporate. You know, It's going to move San Francisco away from being so dominated by uh, high-priced tech offices. And it is interesting to try to envision that, and it rips uh, public transit to pieces too. Uh, Yes, that is a major investment, and that's a big challenge. That is a huge challenge. And the only way, you know, to how do you get that number of people into downtown San Francisco? You can hear I'm British. I mean, I have the same issue with London. So it's very similar, or any big city, Manhattan or Tokyo. And I was talking to someone the other day about Seoul in South Korea. They can't drive, so you can't possibly deal with 3x the amount of traffic. So either we just have less people going in and out every day or they have to walk or bike or something. I mean, you know, until someone invents, you know, the back to the future hoverboard, I think we're in trouble. And, you know, one of the most obvious solution is the rents of those places drop and people move in and live there so they can walk to work. So it's much more oddly enough a kind of localist environment because you can't commute that far on mass transit because people are nervous or you go at weird hours. I mean, you can have much more sync asynchronized as in london interesting enough the london underground or the tube has way higher prices if you travel in peak than off peak and i could see that becoming more extreme so bart could you know be free until 7 a.m free after 10 till 3 and free after 6 and in between those peak hours be incredibly expensive and they may roughly you know manage to pay for themselves this way and spread out the peak of usage but yeah it is a big issue for actually trains and subway systems how on earth they're going to keep afloat We've really covered a huge amount of how everything changes after COVID. You get a lot of business owners and CEOs, as I've read, come to you and asking you about your vision about what's going to happen. What are some of the more interesting questions they've been asking you? You know, another thing that's come up that might be interesting to listeners is whether we should pay people differently if they move away. And I've been strongly against that. You notice Facebook raised that issue. So just to be clear... The question is, imagine you work for Facebook and Mountain View, and you now decided you're going to work from home five days a week and you move out to Alabama, say, where obviously the cost of living is you know, half what it is out here, maybe even less. Should Facebook cut your salary? I'm generally against that in part because, as you know, there's already a whole, a whole bunch of legal issues about you know protected classifications around things like you can't pay people obviously different by gender, by age by race, by religious status. So it seems kind of sensitive to do it by location, bearing in mind that's correlated with some of those things or correlated political views. The other issue is I don't think many firms are going to have 
vast squadrons of people going remote for five days a week. So if you're having to come in the office two days a week, you're not going to go to Alabama and fly twice. You know, it's just not practical. So I've generally been advising firms to stay away from it. I just don't think it's a big enough deal. And it's so controversial. But that's one thing that's come up a lot. Another issue that's interesting for firms, the the degree of choice. So in surveys, it turns out, and I've seen this over and over again in various experiments, there is huge range of views on whether working from home is good or bad. So just to give you some numbers, of the two and a half thousand Americans we surveyed, 20%, they'd never want to work from home. So they want to come in the office every day. 25% said the exact reverse. They'd want to work from home five days a week. And the remaining 45% were sprayed from one up to four days a week in the office. So there's huge variety of views. And you initially think, well, look, let people choose. You know, why don't within some limits, let people choose. The problem that, you know, I've been advising firms against as a challenge is, it's also clear in the data that if you have teams where some people are in the office four days a week and others are only in the office one day a week, if you're at home most of the time and your colleagues are in the office, you run a, a promotion penalty. So this whole thing out of sight, out of mind, and maybe not developing management skills. So if you realize that and then realize that who chooses to work more at home is not random. For example, in the data, you tend to see younger women with kids are more likely to volunteer to work at home more days. You could easily accidentally end up with a system whereby your company is promoting you know, men over women because it's more men coming to the office or older men without kids versus, say, younger men and women with kids, you know, or ethnic mix, all kinds of things. So another big issue that's being grappled with is how much to let people choose versus how much the firm should set a central view. And my own personal view is they should probably set a relatively central view. So I think firms should say, we want to see you in the office three days a week. We want to see you at home two days a week. We want you to be in Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We suggest you go home Tuesday, Thursday. CEO and the top management are all going to do that. It's not everyone's perfect dream. Some people want more, somewhat less, but it's kind of in the middle. And it avoids, you know, the thing that I really fear is that somehow there's some kind of two-tier system for people that are at home working. That that was the problem before the pandemic. If you worked at home, you were the outsider. Post-pandemic, I'd like us all to try and do roughly the same thing so there's no one that feels left out. And you can relax thinking, I'm going to be at home Tuesday, Thursday. I'm not losing out. All my colleagues are at home. I mean, just to be clear, amazingly, one of the issues that's also come up is video calls. So it turns out that video calls work really well if everyone's at home because they're all the same size in the same little square on, you know, with a Zoom or Teams, whatever you use. It's not working well for companies that report some people go back in the office because there's five of them in one little square that's a room and everyone else is in these big things. So and you know, everyone else feels like, what are they whispering about in that room? So it's actually better if everyone's at home or everyone's in the office. It turns out not to work at all well. In fact, even worse than either if you have a mixed mode. That's really interesting. Now, talking about two tiers, there's those of us who are lucky enough to be able to do our work from home. And then there's all of the other people that you talk about who have to have face-to-face interactions or product or interact with their products directly. How do you see this going forward? Are we going to end up with this society where we have these people who have this great flexibility in how they work and where they go? And then the rest, everybody else is going to be out in the world? How is the fact that if we have less people in offices, how is that going to impact uh, all of the industries that are supported by those workers during the day? Those sorts of questions. Those must be also on your mind. You know, in some ways, I think the biggest up downside of the working from home um, growth is the impact on inequality. So I remember going to what's called the American Economics Association, the big annual meetings in January 2020, honestly, like two months before the pandemic broke out. And the two big things people are really 
angst and nervous about and upset about was slowing growth. So growth was slowing down, but increasing inequality. And they are pretty, you know, increasingly a bit of a toxic combination. Unfortunately, COVID has made both of them far worse. So obviously growth has slowed down in a recession. But in terms of working from home, you're exactly right. It, in the data, you see it very clearly. Those with a university degree are far more likely, in fact, five times more likely to be able to work from home compared to people that left school with a high school degree or less. And that is a huge advantage because not only can they work right now, but also they're safer, they're saving on travel, they're saving on time. So it is a challenge. How do we address it? I think it's going to be part of the broader post-COVID settlement. I mean, this is going you know, very radically off from what we we're discussing, but the US government's running up an enormous amount of debt and post-COVID, there's going to be some form of reckoning. And the shutdown has been much less harsh on, honestly, people like me that are university educated. And, uh, you know, I'm a university professor. I'm not like super rich, but I'm reasonably well earning. But people like, you know, university graduates. And I suspect what's going to happen is they will end up paying more of the tax. So post-COVID, when we have to pay off debt, I think there will be a tax increases that's going to fall more heavily on higher earners. It is very clear that working from home is something that doesn't benefit everyone equally. That was Stanford economics professor Nicholas Bloom, who has conducted extensive studies on work from home. I'm Mel Baker. I've been sitting in for Laura Wenis. You've been listening to Civic. <laughs>